Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're on Team Human, folding the fringes back to the center. A celebration of the deeply weird and improbable rise of human beings in the first place, and an investigation of whether we can keep this all going in the face of increasingly automated extraction, repression, surveillance, and control. It's time to design reality on our own terms. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, leader of Google's Artists and Machine Intelligence program, Kenrick McDowell. So I love that a lot of the conversation around AI has to do with what does an other intelligence look like? Because we're surrounded by these other intelligences and we have been trained to ignore them. Kenrick will be sharing strategies for leading technology with human imagination rather than the other way around. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. We've been experimenting with recording Team Human episodes as live events with real audiences. This past month, we played four shows recorded at Gray Area in San Francisco, and I think they ended up capturing something special about Team Human. So we're going to keep doing them both here in New York and, as we can, around the world. To begin, we'll be doing live Team Human shows in Manhattan every third Thursday of the month, hosted by Evolver.net. The first one's going to be at the Alchemist's Kitchen on Thursday evening, May 17th at 7 p.m. We'll post a link at teamhuman.fm to get tickets. And as always, Team Human Patreon subscribers will get in free. So this month's revelations that Facebook sold released or lost control of its data has left many people wondering if they can leave the platform and still survive. After all, Facebook's become the principal social and communications platform for hundreds of millions of people. 
Well, I'm here to tell you, you can not only get through it, but your life and the lives of everyone you know will get better. I left Facebook in 2013, declaring on CNN that we are not the customers, we are the product. And now we have proof that this is true. Facebook was not breached or hacked by Cambridge Analytica. The Facebook platform was doing exactly what it was programmed to do. Harvest our data, identify our psychological triggers, and then manipulate our behavior. And as users are finally realizing, neither Facebook nor the compliance professionals purchasing our data from them care about our secrets or our sex lives. They care only about our raw data from which they can infer our psychological vulnerabilities. So it's not simply that they can get us to buy a particular product or vote for one candidate or another. It's that the techniques they're using intentionally bypass our higher brain functions. They use imagery and language specifically designed to evade our logic and empathy and go straight to our reptilian survival instincts. Our neuroses, the ones that they can figure out with big data, our neuroses are like blind spots. And once identified by the social media psychologist, they become access panels to the more impulsive parts of our brains. Facebook targets and triggers us through terror. The techniques don't appeal to our logic or our empathy, but to our deepest held fears. The tactics are aimed directly at our brain stems, the parts of our brain that act and think like reptiles. Fight or flight, kill or be killed. And we've seen the impact of this technology on our social and political discourse. We may have real things to be angry about, but when these are the only stimuli delivered by our social media, we end up living in a state of perpetual paranoia and rage. No, it's not fun. And it's also a tremendous public health hazard and a threat to democracy. Democracy requires an informed thinking public. So whether you want to be a more responsible citizen or simply a happier person, you owe it to yourself to get off Facebook any way you can. And I'm here to tell you, you can do it. You're going to be okay. It's not so bad. In fact, it's better. If Facebook's the only way your relatives can let you interact with them, then that's already a problem. I guess accepting this restriction on your relationships is acquiescing to a system that values pings more than contact. And you can still email, Skype, FaceTime, share photos through web pages, use iCloud, photo streams, Google Groups, live hangouts. If the teenagers in your life can't reach you through social media, then they'll ultimately use it less. And the less they use social media, the less they're likely to commit suicide. Another great ancillary benefit of getting off Facebook. And a lot of them only get drawn in so they can reach you. Every minute off Facebook is a minute you can choose to spend with another person, forging psychologically healthy relationships instead of submitting to a company that is actively trying to undermine them. And best of all, you get to live life free of the constant psychological abuse inflicted by companies who mean to undermine your social relationships and governments who mean to undermine your faith in democracy, in in our government, in human nature. 
You get to leave the dark place and step back into the light of day. A number of my peers have been arguing in the New York Times and elsewhere that this is an elitist argument, that there are people in developing nations for whom Facebook is their main connection with the internet. It's their access. So by leaving Facebook, we leave them behind in a space even more dominated by those who would do them harm. But to me, that's a bit like arguing we should stay in a crack house because once we leave, the other addicts will be subjected to even worse abuse by the people who run the crack house. By spending time on Facebook, though, we surrender our cognitive processes to the company's psyops engineers. We don't become more empathetic to the concerns of those less fortunate than ourselves. We become more fearful, less responsive, and more impulsive. No, the elitist argument is the one I heard coming from a graduate student last week, not one of my media students in the master's program at Queen's CUNY, thank God, but from an Ivy League student. She asked our panel of professors, why should I care if Facebook has my data? I've got nothing to hide. Why do we have to care about privacy at all? Well, good for you if you don't care about Facebook's algorithms knowing about your sex life or health history. But that's not the real threat here anyway. No one's mining for details about you in order to blackmail you into submission. That's the great fiction of social media, that you matter as a person. You don't. The platform doesn't care about you. It only cares about your data points, your metadata, from which they can construct a psychological profile and then manipulate your behavior. They've been using and selling even the stuff you thought you were sharing confidentially with your friends in order to identify your neuroses and points of psychological vulnerability and then leverage those against you. To ask why should I even care is the true luxury of privilege. Social media manipulation may erode the national conversation or put us into fearful corners or polarize us politically and socially, but the stakes are rarely personal. If you're rich, the stakes generally don't matter anyway. Who's president? What, who, what country is winning what war? What's being done to convicts or poor people? Teens who use social media have higher suicide rates, but if you're not a teen, maybe you don't care about that either. Where data harvesting matters most is when it's used against the economically disadvantaged. It's not only in China that social media data is used to evaluate creditworthiness and immigration status. By normalizing the harvesting of data, those of us with little to fear imperil those who are most vulnerable. Of course, the more we subject ourselves to Facebook's manipulations, the more alienated we'll become from those people of other colors and socioeconomic backgrounds, and less obligated we'll feel to take a stand on their behalf. Plus, Facebook's centrality to the global discourse is not a done deal. I don't accept them as the salvation of our planet. I think there's forces for connection and good that are bigger and better than Facebook. Facebook is just a website. There's still a whole internet out there we could use for something better. By staying and helping Facebook maintain its monopoly, I'm not providing access for the people of developing nations. I'm simply making it all the more necessary for them to submit to Western marketing, manipulation, and mind control. I get to feed my addiction to social media under the pretense that I'm doing it for someone else's benefit. 
You really want to do something for someone else's benefit? Help them escape the tyranny of a social media platform that undermines their chance of thinking clearly, connecting with others, enacting democracy, achieving social justice, or fighting tyranny. Delete Facebook. Find the others. My name is Damian Williams, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Danielle Buton, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Eleanor Seta, and I'm on Team Human. My name's Aaron Barnes, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Francis Morlope, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Arya Sirius, a.k.a. Ken Goffman, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today, artist, technologist, and mage, Kenrick McDowell. particularly psyched to welcome Kenrick McDowell to Team Human. He's designed smartphone interfaces, traveled in liminal spaces, studied speculative fiction, and initiated an interesting set of conversations intersecting all of these things. He now runs something called the Artists and Machine Intelligence Program at Google. There's so many things to talk about here, but, uh, you know, for, for everybody's sake, maybe... If you could explain what it is that you now do at Google and kind of move back mm-hmm. from there, because mm-hmm. it's a it's a weird title. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very unusual uh, what I do at Google, and the story of how it happened is actually pretty odd and has some kind of funny. It's just very surprising. So I came into Google as an engineer with a background in user experience and front-end interface design and development. And um, at a certain point after being there, short, very very shortly after being there, I moved into the AI research group and was doing sort of a end-to-end design within a research kind of speculative design practice um, that was happening in Google's AI research group. And after doing that for a while, this funny thing happened, which was that uh, Deep Dream leaked onto the internet. So if you've seen, you may have seen these images that look like kind of melting slugs and animals and eyeballs and are very surrealistic and kind of psychedelic and almost like the type of thing you'd see on LSD. These images that came were coming out of Google research, specifically this one image called Trippy Squirrel that leaked onto Reddit, really kind of you know, blew the lid off of this experiment that had been happening internally, which was to look inside of neural nets to see what's happening. So a neural net is, and this I'm, I'm kind of telling you what I do in the most roundabout way possible, cool. but I, the, it's an interesting story, I think. So a neural net is um, a very cartoonish, simple model of a human brain, and they've been used, you know, for decades, actually, in computer science but there have been some advances recently, and they're, they're very good at doing image understanding and computer vision. And one of our engineers, Alex Morvenstev, in Zurich was looking at what happens inside of them because they get treated often like a black box. And actually, you can take it apart a little bit, but what happens when you do is that you actually see these very strange images that are very hallucinogenic. And actually, the process of producing these images that leaked is a technical process called hallucination. So anyway, this image leaked, this image trippy squirrel, uh, on Reddit, and 
it, you know, there is some press around it and Google research decided to respond to it. And so they made a blog post about it. And there was so much interest that my director, Blaise Aguari Arcas, was like, hey, let's do an art show. And uh, being one of the only person with an MFA in like at the time, maybe a hundred person organization, I was like, hey, let me help. You know, I know how this works. I know kind of what you're getting into. And it's not something to just dabble in let's like take it seriously and the hundred persons is just that division of google it's not that google was oh, only a hundred people no exactly yeah. that was this one research group which is now um, probably almost 300 people yeah. um but as the only person who really understood what that meant uh, i stepped in uh, and now i run a program called artists and machine intelligence which brings artists into google to into Google research, AI research specifically, or um, yeah, I guess let's just call it that, um, to work with engineers to produce projects that use AI to make art. And we also bring in philosophers, we work with urban theorists, um, and people in general that have an understanding of culture and an expertise in culture and in the kind of broad scale thinking that's required to do philosophy or urbanism or art. and they they'll work with us to produce things for their practice or to consult with us on what we should be doing or how we should be thinking about um, developing AI because AI machine learning and these emerging technologies have have such a broad impact on every aspect of culture and civilization that we really can't be designing them in a bubble and these people you know under the rubric of art are able to come speak with us and help us broaden our thinking so you come came back around the whole other end. You pushed through engineering and went back to your sort of MFA liberal arts roots. Yeah, exactly. I have had for 20 years been kind of splitting my energies between practicing as an artist and a musician and uh, working in technology that, you know, was related to my practice but was definite there was definitely a clear boundary and at a certain point when this kind of just emerged almost out of nowhere, this bizarre artistic expression of uh, artificial intelligence. Um, I was the right person to understand, you know, the different aspects of it. And thankfully, I have an incredible team of people that are, you know, practicing ML researchers and scientists, as well as people that do more typical kind of, you know, communications and just managing, you know, big corporate processes so that this this work can get done. I mean, when I visited Google, it was a little scary for me. It, it was like IBM kind of, and or Washington, D.C., and everybody was in really normal clothes and going mm -hmm. around on bicycles mm -hmm. and all corporate. And I thought, ah, I wouldn't be able to live here, even though there was good food. Mm -hmm. And now it sounds like there's like this little posse of psychedelic artist people. I mean, is there... Mm -hmm. Did you did you change when you went from sort of UX UI to getting to do this full time? Were you allowed to? Did you not allowed to? But did you find yourself listening to different music and wearing different clothes and hanging out <laughs> with stranger people? Or uh, maybe professionally, but I had always been <laughs> kind of tapped into the you know various different subcultures. And I mean, I grew up in the Bay Area, so the kind of genetics of Bay Area countercultures, psychedelia, and and the political alignments that are, you know, were all very understandable to me. I mean, I, I lived here in New York for quite a while, and I lived in Seattle for a bit. And But I, you were in San Francisco before it got 
totally gentrified or I lived there in the late 90s right. yeah and so it was the very beginning of the tech boom um so but there was still the tail end of the rave yeah, you know, exactly. And that was yeah. that was happening when I was in high school. So that was this beautiful, exotic kind of <laughs> revolutionary culture happening just over the bridge to me. And um, so I, I understand, like, I feel innately, I understand a lot of the roots of this and the ideologies are very familiar of the counterculture. And, and so it wasn't necessarily a stretch for me to, in, in fact, it was more of a merging of my own personality with my kind of corporate presence. I um, mean, that's been a huge part of it, to be honest, is like how much of my own interest and personal um, state can I put into these projects that also have this huge structure around them and that type of work, working within these centers of power and these sources of technological infrastructure as an individual with a stake in culture and in you know, for better or worse, a kind of utopian politic. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that's one of the challenges of this, but it's a, it's also one of the opportunities and it's a very real tension that exists in that kind of, anyone who's doing that kind of work, whether it's for a humanist version of technology or, or just an aesthetic version of technology, there's always going to be that. And I don't think it's productive necessarily to make such a clean distinction. I, I did for decades because that was what was safe for me personally to just have a job and live and be an artist. But, you know, at a certain point, the opportunity came up for me to do both of those at the same time. Right. I mean, that's the hardest part as a, uh, I don't know, counterculturalist or someone with revolutionary and utopian Mm -hmm. ideals to think, okay, so when I put myself in your position and I think, well, on the one hand, it's like, Oh, this is great. I'm I'm in the belly of the beast, but doing God's work. You know, right. if you're going to be polar about it. Yeah. But the thing the thing that's hard to know is, are are you, or are we even when we talk about this and celebrate it, are we doing just some kind of a trivial PR effort for a big corporation who wants to create a softer appearance? You know, and when I talk to the uh, IBM Watson people, it's like 90% of that is friggin' marketing fluff Mm -hmm. to try to make this thing less scary. And I keep telling them, if they want to make it less scary, stop talking about it as if it's a person. Stop (laughs) talking, you know what I mean? Stop assigning all of these attributes (laughs) that you know perfectly well. This is basically a... a, a, This is is augmented search is all really that Mm -hmm. they've got going there right now. Um, To... To... You know, this is a full spectrum. You can either be just doing PR for stuff and and it's trivial. You could be uh, breaking the machine from within or breaking a certain aspect of it from within without them knowing it. Or it could be that, you know, Larry and Sergey and all still have that original Stanford dorm room dream about making the world a better place. And now they're leveraging some of those resources to help design the future of reality. Yeah, I mean... I think a lot of that polarity in the thinking, there's a certain type, there's a certainty that allows one to have that polarity. And the deeper you get into the actual practice of doing this type of work, the more you realize that that certainty is is an illusion. So just as an example, we brought in for writers to and artists to participate in a workshop. Um, and so we had the philosopher Timothy Morton, the artist Hito Sterl, 
the urban theorist Benjamin Bratton and the science fiction speculative design expert Sheldon Brown all came in to work with us um, in a one-day workshop uh, and that that resulted in some writing, which we'll be publishing. Um, but the the focus of it was, what do we need to understand better to make the right type of AI, and to do to do what we're doing in terms of product development and design from a more grounded perspective. And so, what we found in the conversation, I mean, a lot of their orientation, I would say, would comes from the object oriented ontology realm of philosophy, which is a kind of emergent movement in philosophy. Um, but a key understanding that came out of that was that we're not individually these kind of like bubble wrap, saran wrapped, like enclosed individual consumers that have a one to one relationship between ourselves and anything else. We're all made of these moving parts. We're all, you know, there's more bacteria living inside of us than our own cells, you know, these type of ideas. Yeah, there's more other people's thoughts than our own, things like that. Exactly. And so when you start to see yourself as more of a uh, intersection of forces or a thing that's made up of other things or part of a multi-scalar environment, it's hard to have that same polarized view of anything. And so trying to rebuild our thinking from the ground up in terms of this product development and just conceptualize the basic concept of user or tool or anything like that can really be opened up in that way. And so when that's how I'm approaching these artistic projects is more from that point of view where if I take on an opposition to the environment that I'm in, it's ultimately toxic for me. And it, it denies the invasion of myself by these forces anyway. So it's sort of a, about taking responsibility for my participation in this whole spectrum of technologies and civilization and not kind of putting myself into a very romantic position of opposing something that I'm ultimately benefiting from as an employee or just as a person that lives in the U.S. Right. So it's kind of st- staying porous in some mm-hmm. ways. But when... I mean, I don't want to jump to, to crazy land already, but why not? <laughs> um, I live there anyway. I mean, how is how has this work? How has your engagement with the the really the the deepest spaces that we know about within artificial intelligences and uh, autonomous agents? How has it changed or impacted the way you think about human autonomy? You know, because even you're now even talking about yourself as kind of part of this system and all. It's really fuzzy where the system stops and where our agency, if we even have such a thing, begins. (laughs) Yeah. And you can get into sort of paranoid spaces exploring that for sure. I will say the aspect of AI that has really shifted my thinking experientially and and really perceptually and through my senses is this property that it has of being highly multidimensional, meaning that neural nets can be viewed as, in a way, mathematically and sort of as a mental model, um, as these super high dimensional spaces. So you can find a location in a 500,000 dimensional space and have that be uh, almost like an address within a neural net. And thinking about things in this way as 
seeing artwork, seeing images, hearing sounds that come out of these multidimensional systems, but are sort of pathways through this highly multidimensional space, that has shifted my perception um, more than anything else. So the idea that I might be inhabiting a highly multidimensional space of gender, for example, the way that that can be understood with a more multidimensional model rather than a binaristic model, or that I might be inhabiting a multidimensional space um, culturally, or just the idea of multidimensionality as a frame has become something that I have a very sensory grasp on because of these AI art projects. And that's something that's deeply embedded in the mathematics of AI. I don't know that that's necessarily the most obvious thing when you look at Deep Dream, that that's what's happening, but that is what's happening. And I think, you know, you look at, for example, network culture and how human culture has absorbed the structure of the network in its expression on the internet and the effect that that's had. I believe we are going to see a similar type of expression of this multidimensionality that we might not even see at all right now. But, you know, when you encounter algorithms on Amazon or Facebook or something, we're not thinking about these as like, 500,000 dimensional spaces that are we're slicing our way through in this flatland kind of way but that is that is what's happening um and it seems to me that the underlying structures of these things do express themselves on the surface and so multidimensionality within neural nets is the fundamental mathematical structure I mean, it's funny cuz you're i mean part of the difference is it's not just that they're Amazon algorithm is so is so thin sliced, but it's just so instrumentalized, mm-hmm. you know, to one such a small specific single task of mm-hmm. maximize spending, you know, mm-hmm. just do that. Mm-hmm. And it's like the play is gone mm-hmm. when that's happening. So in some ways, by bringing artists and thinkers and others in, even before the, oh, what's the social justice and environmental agenda, mm-hmm. it's just to restore the playfulness and uh, not as a distraction but as kind of the divine human purpose absolutely yeah that the way that you i mean it's interesting to talk about interjecting playfulness before these other things get stacked on because we're really what you're saying what you're doing is prioritizing a, a human value and saying this is missing from our process and just doing that is an intervention in and of itself and it's true you know i think you're critique about PR efforts and all these kind of things is really valid. And so that's why we try to get this participation to happen in the research phase. Because if you're kind of like bringing people in to aestheticize something after it's been produced, there's really not a lot of stake in it for them. Right. Or, you know, there's you can even apply the play or instrumentalize the play too quickly. Mm-hmm. So I've been called in to... to Intel to do some of their design speculation sci-fi stuff and it's they they deliver these are the technologies we're working on and you're supposed to read those for like a week and then you're supposed to think for a week and then you speculate on that for a week Mm -hmm. to engineers who then go back to the lab it's like wait a minute where was where was the play here Mm -hmm. it's like uh, uh, you know some it's almost like having to perform you know, perform in a porn film or something. It's like there's play there, but it's so bracketed by mm-hmm. the requirements mm-hmm. that it it doesn't get it doesn't fold onto itself. It doesn't. And also, if it's instrumentalized, it's like, no, wait a minute. I we're not we're not playing for something. Right. Play happens for itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, 
I think partly what you're talking about are time pressures that are introduced by the models of business, you know, quarterly reports, annual funding. And I've seen this, you know, having done this for a few years now, I've seen the way that those structures impinge on the process. And we've actually had the best results over, you know, one to two years, you know, so we'll do a project with somebody, maybe we'll continue for another year or another year after that. Or they'll come back to us two years later and be like, hey, look, this is what I've been doing with what we started. And so seeing these longer term developments and actually, you know, I'm very grateful for the ramp that I've had and the coverage I've had to be able to spin this up over a longer period of time and not have to get a quarterly result on an artistic project because that's just unreasonable. It doesn't. And anybody that has worked in the art field understands that, but people in corporate and engineering and kind of like move fast and break things type of world you know, they are talking about like a day turnaround on, on things, not, you know, they, they want you to come up with the amazing hack that, you know, that night, cause it hits you like a bolt of lightning and then you do it and then it's shipping the next morning. I mean, obviously things take longer than that, but that's the sort of archetypal ideal of what's supposed to be happening at software companies. Not like, let's give this technology to an artist and wait a year and see what they come up with. It's very unusual. Right. And you, it gets you deeper. I mean, having having witnessed the closest thing to you know androids dreaming of electric sheep, mm-hmm. uh, what what are you what are you feeling is the 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 difference if there is one, you know, between what what what's at least emerging in technology as a form of of consciousness or awareness, and what it is that we humans do. I mean, to be really practical about it, and I feel kind of a responsibility to be really practical to answer that question. I mean, it's a, it's a such a fun place to speculate, but there's plenty of speculation. Um, what we have now is very simple and can reproduce sort of the average or something like the average. So let's talk about um, like writing, for example. I um, went on this project with an artist this road trip project with an artist named Ross Goodwin called Word Car. And so he put a surveillance camera on his car and it was connected to this AI system. And we drove from New York to New Orleans and it narrated what it saw through the, through the camera in, in the way that it could with this neural net trained on writing, right. And object recognition and stuff. It was 1039 in the morning and there was no trace of any factory in the open Walmart Supercenter, a big box store in New Orleans. The headlights had been given rise to consciousness. Power lights in the sky, he said. This is a building that brings the prisoners to the station. What came out was kind of like Dadaistic nonsense to a large extent, but it did have a, a thread of, of sense to it, and it was actually kind of poetic because it was random-ish. Um, but really what a system like that can reproduce is sort of the average novel meaning it can get a sense of what a novel is and give and i mean let's let's pare that down to maybe like a sentence it can give you give a get a sense of what a sentence is and reproduce that but it's going to be more like the target is just a sensible sentence but and this not is what, meaningful this is what thought. howard Rheingold witnessed i don't know if you saw the video he used to do this martian anthropologist mm-hmm. we just had him on the show i mean in the 70s he was doing this martian anthropologist and he went to some lab at stanford with a teletype 
machine, Mm -hmm. and it was writing these two-sentence science fiction novels Mm -hmm. based on everything else it could find. You know, they Mm -hmm. fed every science fiction thing in, and it was like, you know, people, you know, people come out of a spaceship, you know, the aliens eat the humans, the end, you know, (laughs) things like that. But you're talking about the same basic process, just more, more better. Yeah, I think so. And and the big breakthroughs, I think, really are going to be... So we're talking really about something called supervised learning, which is where you give a bunch of labeled data or you give a bunch of structured data to a machine and it processes it and gains some ability to automate the generation of that type of data versus um, unsupervised learning where you kind of set a machine algorithm loose in a field and it kind of iterates through and kind of learns on its own. And that emergence of uh, intelligence from this wild kind of more chaotic environment has a promise of being a little bit more like our own intelligence. But I think anthropomorphizing AI is really a mistake in the sense that, one, it's incorrect. Uh, you know, structurally, it's just a bad model for AI because AI is very, right now, neural nets are these very simple maps to what you know they're they're cartoons of human brains um and two because an anthropocentric model of the universe is also flawed in really profound ways so if we kind of create this machine that's very different from us and then want it to look and act and be like us uh, we're just reproducing a lot of our own biases like socially but also on a very existential level that are problematic. You know, the anthropocentric model is like why we have this ecological crisis that we're facing this extinction crisis. So the idea of producing machines that just feed that back to us seems like a very bad direction to go. So how do you see anthropomorphizing as as feeding into the environmental crisis? Well, if we if we put humans at the center of everything, which we do, um, we're we're blind to the effects the, the effects on other species of our actions. And so if we do that symbolically with machines, with machine intelligences, then we've kind of kept ourselves in a loop of human, of anthropocentric imagination. Uh, whereas if we allow the alienness of machine intelligence to reflect back to us that there are other types of intelligence that exist in the world, and you know, then we create the possibility of seeing them where they already are, you know, in animals and in plants and in elements. So I love that a lot of the conversation around AI has to do with what does an other intelligence look like, because we're surrounded by these other intelligences and we have been trained to ignore them. Um, But we're so fetishistic about technology. We love our products and we love our technology so much that if we have this weird other intelligence in there, I can look at that and say, well, hey, that's really a lot like this other living thing over here. And the conversation can really broaden. Right. I mean, the the tagline of this show is find the others. Mm -hmm. And I always meant it in the terms of the others, you know, Mm -hmm. not the other ones like you, but (laughs) who do you think of as other, Mm -hmm. you know, which could just be icky people, you know, or (laughs) other, truly other, you know, Mm -hmm. making contact. But I, I, it's funny because I don't see uh, I don't see our denial of uh, the sentience and and rights of other things as being so pro-human as just you know capitalist or extractive. If we were truly embracing our humanity, then mm-hmm. we'd be humane, right? Right. 
Yeah. We, well, it's it has to do with the definition of what is human and what is a self, right? And if we're more porous, then we acknowledge that our humanity is embedded in the environment. And to embrace that, we have to embrace the environment, embrace the other the others that surround us. But you don't seem like someone for whom the the you know, amazing abilities of super simple algorithms, which they're there. I see that. Mm-hmm. I mean, how complicated they can get so quickly or how a fern plant is like a fractal or something mm-hmm. with, you know, three lines of code. You mm-hmm. model one. Um, that hasn't led you to oversimplify whatever this human thing that we're experiencing is. I mean, you still think that, that human life and the world and nature, this is just a totally weird, bizarre... Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, the machines, if anything, the abilities of the these machines, I, at least in my experience, the more you see how powerful they are, the more you realize how weird natural intelligence is, you know? Not weird, but just that, like, we can kind of create a somewhat rationalized version of intelligence, and all it does is reflect back to us how rich what's already happening is. You know, and so, you know, in my moments of doubt, I'm like, do we even need any of this? Like, <laughs> I don't know that we do. I mean, other than it being fun, mm-hmm. do we need it? I don't know. Sometimes I just want to push back to some kind of permaculture, aboriginal, indigenous, you know, not pre-agricultural, but but a more complicated, subtle form of of nature stewardship. Well, that I mean, that it seems that that worldview is something that we need to navigate the complexities of these emerging techno cultures too. I mean, uh, the idea of pre-agricultural consciousness being more connected to natural forces are being more connected to even chaotic forces or, or systems thinking systems thinking exactly yeah I, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of gordon white but his book starships mm-hmm. is a really amazing model of what that might have looked like that pre-agricultural i mean a well-researched and structured one but the idea of an yeah. archaic revival or the idea of a sort of return to a shamanic worldview has a i mean this is kind of that Bay Area '90s countercultural idea, the but myth of eternal return mm-hmm. and reincarnation and and reenacting the will of the gods and mm-hmm. yeah, that's the new literally the new age was mm-hmm. supposed to be retrieving those values. Yeah, and then the movement of that you know that '80s kind of new age through the techno optimism of the '90s and then into sort of what we've experienced now and. To a certain extent, you can look at culture and see the same trends of, you know, uh, shamanic practices like growing in popularity and the that world that that new age worldview actually becoming kind of a mainstream one in a certain respect. Or like, but so applied, you know. Mm-hmm. So you know, the myth of eternal return or something becomes the secret. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Or NLP speed dating. Instrumentalized. Or yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, which is which is different. It's like, yeah, chaos magic, it's great. But you know, when I see a book, it's like chaos magic for fun and profit, you know, <laughs> or whatever. You right. know, it's like, okay, you know, it, that's not the Mondo two thousand dream of how these technologies are just going to expand our our neurology and consciousness. Well, you have to look at that transhumanist point of view too, and. I mean, even even supposing that we we could achieve that, it the way that it's being structured right now is 
it's I mean, it's all on the back of of profit driven capitalism. It's all in these sort of objective functions of of growth and expansion. And the idea that a singularity would happen in this context is frankly terrifying, you know, <laughs> like what but then but then where, you know, is it, what would the alternative be? Is there is there some kind of structure that we can inhabit for developing these technologies that would be the right one with the right, you know, that would produce of its own structure the right social aspect for performing a transhumanist technology. But to be honest, we have transhumanist technologies. We have abilities to transcend ourselves, but they're deeply, deeply embedded in colonized cultures. And they're, they're coming from shamanic practice they're coming from plant understanding um but like that that ability to like transcend our individual self and like emerge into a matrix of energetic multi-dimensional transmissions like we've had that for a long time well we've had dmt for a long time you know (laughs) or ayahuasca or something exactly yeah so that's really happening that's (laughs) when you when you do those things is that really happening or do we just think it's happening well i mean i would I would bounce that back with the question of is the reason to do these to seek for a technological implementation of things to con is it just to confirm that these things are happening? <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's it has to comes down to materialism, right? I mean right. a lot of this uh a lot of the I think a lot of the unconscious motivation for production of these things is to materialize that which is repressed by materialism which is our transcendent dimension. I mean, it's hilarious to me that we have these like church of the singularity type of movements uh, within the culture that is the most materialistic in the sense of like the one that has, the one that has really repressed the sacred, the spiritual, the non-material is the one that's looking for it so hard in its box of materialism. It's almost like we took out the transcendent out of the box, put it away somewhere, said this doesn't exist, and then now we're shaking the box going, where's the transcendent? How do we get it out of this box that we created? Right. Well, in some ways it's like, well, if we, if I disconnect myself from my sacred origin completely, can I synthesize sacredness? <laughs> yeah. Ex nihilo, you know? Yeah, exactly. Right, I mean, which is a, a, apparently a fun exercise for a species to, to do for a couple millennia, but we got it. Well, you kill your parents and make some babies, I guess, is sort of the mm-hmm. the thing. It's We want to feel, I don't know, I guess we want to feel somehow in charge of something or in control. Yeah, I think feeling in control is definitely a big part of it. I mean, when you think about the qualities that these indigenous transcendent experiences have, it's like not being in control is a huge part of that. Well, what keeps you, what keeps you doing this? In other words, why have have you ever considered? Oh, I'm just gonna go on a, go on a farm and read occult literature and sing or something. I mean, yeah, I think about that all the time. And like my right now, I mean, I live in Topanga in LA. I'm kind of like a little bit tucked away in the mountains, and like my I'm trying to get my life closer to. To, to living on a farm and singing and reading occult literature. <laughs> but um, when I think about disconnecting in that way, I mean, I have been engaged in technology, in the field of technology, since, like I said, in, since San Francisco in the 90s, and so it's been a couple decades. And 
it's really hard for me to imagine who I would be if I hadn't been born into this situation. And so there's a certain amount of just responsibility, I guess, to acknowledge that, like, I am part of this. And it takes an incredible amount of privilege to just sort of unplug and be like, all right, you guys deal with it. I'm going to just... <laughs> and, you know, for some people, that's what they need to do. And that makes sense. Uh, for me, I happen to find myself in this oddly empowered situation to make art, to speak to these issues in a place where there might be the amplification across culture and civilization. I mean, it could, it, assuming that I'm successful in the, the goals that I have and that the people I work with are successful in our goals for the program, we would we would and are, we would be and we are having um, an impact on how AI is conceptualized from a very foundational level, you know. So the promise of that possibility of having that influence or the promise of injecting these ideas into the system that's producing these, even if it is kind of just washed away with the tides, um, <laughs> you know, that's what keeps me engaged. I mean, and in some ways, you're the you're the conscience of this technology. I don't just mean conscience in terms of like guilty conscience, mm. but you're bringing an awareness into this into this development. Yeah, and like you said, there are other people like that. There are others, you know, and um, I'm not the only person who has this type of mindset. Although, um, I'd say the mainstream in Silicon Valley. The sort of furthest you, the the most you can push the mainstream is towards like mindfulness, maybe, or um, not, humanism, yeah, not harming children with algorithms, right? Or... And you know that's important. Yeah, <laughs> like we can't. That that's that's really important. So, um, you know, I might be on the fringe in some ways, but I'm also not alone. Well, you're not alone, but you're also closer to because I know the guys that started this culture. You're mm-hmm. closer to that, you know, to the, uh, um, you know, and for better and for worse, they had they had. Uh, uh, problems as well, but you know, the, the Stuart Brand and Howard Rydgold and 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 Ted Nelson and you know the people who were uh, had the craziest, wonderful visions about what this could be. I mean, it was after the military, I guess. You know, built most of this, but there was that moment, late '80s, homebrew computer club, mm-hmm. Berkeley. Mm-hmm. You know, early Steve Jobs. Like, well, this is gonna flip the whole script. And it it did. It did, but we 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 went from Mondo to Wired really fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and that that was so disheartening for so many of us. And it's funny because I don't. A lot of people will look at my books over the years and say, "Oh, when did you turn from technology booster to technology critic?" Mm-hmm. And it's like I've never been the critic of the technology. It's just who's what they're building it for. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, technology is not, I mean, it's not neutral, but it can be used for a lot of different purposes. And so the idea of using it to make art is, for me, fundamentally good. Well, yeah, using almost anything to make art is fundamentally good. But art is also about, you know, posing questions, not delivering answers. Mm-hmm. So it's the opposite of what we think of technology for, you know? It's the opposite of engineering in that sense, too. Yeah, like the certainty and the precision and analysis that, you know, the analytical measurability of engineering is just not there in art. And so the reintroduction of that uh, of that mystery or of that play or of that uncertainty is really valuable, but ultimately that is also where the 
the work has to be done, let's say for the people like myself that are inside the system, it's one thing to be like, yes, art is valuable, it's meaningful, let's play, let's be creative, let's generate in that way. But how do you actually turn that into uh, an impact on a technology product? And it does have to do with thinking and the basic concepts that you use and what it means to be a human or to be a person or a thing. But uh, that has to get translated too. And translation is a big part of what I do. So, you know, the work that we did with those philosophers and artists ultimately became part of a design language that we were developing that is, you know, getting handed off to people inside to to work on their product strategy. Um, but that also, there is a middle layer too. And design has a lot to do with that. That can be the space where you can find the balance between the creative impulse and the playful impulse and a sort of let's just call it use value or an implementability within a more technical system. For those who aren't going to actually, you know, join you as professional, uh, you know, artist, thinker, technologists, what, so far anyway, are your sort of recommendations for you know, best practices for humans moving through the current landscape? which is, you know, filled with various uh, mine, you know, landmines mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, kind of cyber traps. I'm not saying, you know, n not necessarily, you know, built by Google, or but but all of them. I mean, some intentional, some not. You know, it, it it's really tempting, particularly for a team human audience to say, let me just have less. Less tech is the best solution. You know, and that's mm -hmm. a, it's a good one, you know, because mm -hmm. just use what you need. But sort of what have you uh, sort of de developed or has certain sort of best life practices emerged for you? Sure. I mean, I think to a certain extent they they exist irrespective of any technological implement implementation, right? I mean, it's like this, it's the same things that anyone would say of, of being grounded, breathing, you know, connecting to the earth, like very basic, like let's get to the let's get a footing, you know, and I think, yeah, less is more with technology. Um, but then there's another side of it, which is that we have a degree of empowerment with these things, you know, I mean, first of all, to choose whether or not we interact with them. But second of all, these things are all made by humans. These are social structures. Um, and if you have an interest or a stake in how a technology is going, you can find a voice in that process. It might take a really long time. You know, it might be something that you are forced into by circumstance, you know, or that you just happen to be surrounded by to the extent that you can't avoid it. There, I think taking, being afraid of the large scale of this is, is maybe one of the most disempowering aspects of it in the sense that there are people working on these things and there are people that might be more like-minded than you imagine working on these things. And to sort of fall into that trap of polaristic thinking about, you know, good and evil or, you know, uh, victims and perpetrators um, really takes away a lot of your own, your own power. But ultimately, really, like you have to start with yourself and with the tools that you have of just breathing and existing in space time in the moment that we're in and not getting anxious and paranoid and freaked out. And then you have a place to work from. Right. And then you find one other person, look in their eyes, breathe with them, mm -hmm. you know, and so on. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you, do you, do you feel like you, do you practice, uh, 
do you practice magic of any kind or <laughs> I'm not sure how much I should admit to <laughs> on this podcast, but um, I mean, I guess the thing I I would I didn't really say in the last um, in that last kind of answer was that you know for me the recovery of my ability to be empowered and to be healthy within this highly technologized urban context is through indigenous practices that have been colonized and through the recovery of those practices that other individuals have done and that I've contributed to, you know, as a member of the community. So, um, with that, and I want to be too direct, but I mean, it's pretty, I think it's pretty obvious what those things have to do with, you know, it has to do with plant medicine. It has to do with ritual practice and, um, I think once you've jailbroken yourself a little bit in terms of thinking and getting out of some of the conditioning that in, in the way that those experiences can, um, can, you know, the, the, the way you can use those experiences can help decondition you and help you see through some of what's happening. Um, then, then there is a responsibility to study magic essentially because it is the older, more established tool for dealing with the universe as it truly is you know so then when you're looking for for when you're researching or trying to bring you know magical practice into your life and you know beyond the 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 basic you know shamanic plants or whatever that that jumpstart the thing mm-hmm. i mean where do you go are you looking at you know like crowley and blavatsky <laughs> or are you looking at you know ancient uh, civilizations well, I think, you know, it's all useful. For me personally, my own interest in the esoteric began when I was in my early 20s with yoga and some experiences that I had that were quite unexplainable. And then um, through that, I learned about Kundalini and about Tantra and about um, Eastern philosophy in general. I'm a big fan of Dzogchen Buddhism and the sort of non-dual strains of, of uh, Eastern mysticism, but also... Uh, there's as much in, in the Western tradition. So um, obviously uh, Kabbalah models many of the same fundamental principles just in a different language. Um, and so really the non-dual approach is what's most interesting to me and like with esoteric Kabbalah or with, uh, or with Eastern mysticism. And then you do that by like, you like read a Diane Fortune book or something, or do, can you sit and you draw something on the ground? Um, yeah, I do a lot of reading. I used to be like really, really into meditation um, and yoga. And then at a certain point, my practice shifted more towards just trying to um, exist in the, the world as such with the, with the awareness of meditation. Um, but I, I um, you know, I use sigils. I use the timing with planetary motion and with, you know, auspicious elections as they occur. And uh, there's, you know, speaking of finding the others, once you plug into that multidimensional matrix, there are, are there also are, uh, you know, helpers there. And what are they, you know? <laughs> what are they? I mean, because you could read John Lilly will have one explanation and, and, and categorize them on the 47 levels of, uh, uh, of travel. The Wiccans have their thing, or some people say it's just metaphors, or are these machine elves? It's like, what the heck are they? Well, you know, I think it's interesting that you say metaphors because I really like to not be bound by literalism. So if 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 everything is a metaphor, 
which it kind of is, yeah. then you don't really have the problem of like going, is this real? Did this really happen? You know, when when we're sort of bound by materialism, we have to sort of say, well, that was real, so I can count on it, or that was real, so uh, therefore that's that's existentially valid, and that can be included in my reality. Otherwise, I'm going to like say that that didn't happen. Versus like, perhaps there's a divine poetry to the flow of events that, when you accept it as such, is more empowering than trying to. F- parse everything for its kind of existential validity. And so metaphors are a great way of doing that. And a great, almost, there's almost like more peace in a metaphor, you know, like you can just be like this metaphorically relates to that. And that's enough. It is what it is, it is what it is, or it is what it isn't, or it represents what it is. But, but my, my problem with technology lately has been the the way it seems to want to parse everything that if mm-hmm. it's not that if something's not here or there it doesn't exist anymore and i feel like that's right. the way we're developing technology now is to almost mute the very weirdness that we're talking about here right well there's a certain instrumental need to mute the weirdness rather than to expose it but it's considered I, noise right i think when it comes to metaphors specifically, too, um, pattern recognition is a huge part of it, right? And so I see some promise in the way that neural nets and machine learning are reflecting pattern recognition back to us. And actually, you know, when you when you talk about uh, expressions of the unconscious in day-to-day life, right? Like this is a typical psychoanalytic theory that like we're going to uh, express ourselves unconsciously and produce events that will help us recover like our own traumas or whatever it is and um, that type of expression might be sensible by a machine actually like if we were just to look for patterns uh, you know so like a, a, a therapist will look at the patterns that you represent in your behavior and in how you represent your behavior and and point them out to you reflect them back to you so if a machine is really good at recognizing patterns it might actually be able to just rec- just reflect back to you the patterns that exist in your world which can be where the magic is. So in a sense, yes, we're instrumentalizing away some of the noise or the synchronicity, but at the same time, there is a possibility that all of our analysis might actually lead to a a worldview that is magical that can't be denied. And I mean, you have that sort of situation with physics already where, you know, people are saying, well, the universe shouldn't exist. And like, to me, that's like a direct expression of non-dual meditation. You're like, yes, the universe should not exist, yet it does. So, like, let's just sit with that for a while and, like, see what that does to our consciousness to try to absorb that. So I think materialism is having its own, uh, it's having itself rewired by these investigations. And um, I guess maybe one way of being a techno-utopian would be to say that, like, this scientific understanding will ultimately undermine the limitations of instrumentalization. So to think that maybe businesses could say, you know, actually the best thing for us would be for human, for all humans to have their most basic needs met. Right. I mean, that's the techno-libertarian type of like approach to solving the problem. And maybe there's some collective representation in a non-business way that needs to be part of that. But ultimately the idea that uh, it's just another way of describing these, these processes undermining their own assumptions, perhaps. Right. It's like if we got to the place where we realized no matter how small we make the Lego pieces, they will never 
actually be able to represent the curvilinear quality of reality, mm-hmm. you go, oh, so there's, it reifies that there's something going on here that can't be coded. Yeah. I think you can, I mean, the the point of mysticism to me is that you can jump straight to that understanding. You don't have to go through this long, arduous, materialistic deconstruction of everything. You can just sort of like drop into it, you know, and experience that state. But there must have been, not there must have been, hopefully there's a reason or a benefit to for having left the aboriginal mindset 10,000 years ago or whenever you know the westerners did and develop the illusion of individual consciousness and personality and ego and all that and then re-embracing the aboriginal connected consciousness but now sort of somehow maybe you know willfully or consciously as opposed to just automatically or is that just pinning false hope on a detour <laughs> yeah when you were saying that i was like or we could just be going don't like on don't. the biggest <laughs> most you know the biggest possible level <laughs> what a wasted 2000 years and all those lives and violence and suffering i mean from a you know from a procession of the equinoxes kind of like great ages point of view it's like the piscean age is about separation and suffering and like we all have to cry um so I mean, you but know. we're in the age of Aquarius now. Exactly. <laughs> but this is okay. So this is the this is where I think a lot of these threads come together, right? I mean, whether or not you even believe that that's a real thing, you know, maybe you're maybe you've deconstructed astrology or something, and you, you're like, that's not even right. It's happening thirty two thousand years right. from now, or you're like, that's just all bullshit. Whatever. That from a sort of hyperstitional point of view, the narrative has been in place, right? And so we've seeded that reality, but the conditions of that, the outpouring of um, esoteric knowledge and secrets, the outpouring of technologies, the, you know, the sort of image of the water bearer pouring out all of these things, um, really all of that conspires to produce a very chaotic situation, right? And in fact, um, well, you know, it's funny, I had this dream one time and uh, I was, I was floating above the earth and there were like there was like space junk everywhere and there was like etheric space junk everywhere and there was this guy that looked like steve jobs that came up to me and he was like i'm going to show you the earth in 100 years and so i looked down at the earth in 100 years and it was chaos it was like burning man was happening in like 100 places at once and like people trying to clean up the environment and there's like people making robots and all this stuff and he was like this is this is the future because the earth is a neutral place. It's neither good nor bad. If it was 51% good, we would be in utopia. If it was 51% bad, we would be in hell. But we're just kind of in both all the time. And uh, it, what I took from that was that the utopian impulse, uh, the, um, the search for a transcendent, aspect of technology in that way is is somewhat misguided and that actually this chaotic age that we're living in is really more about handling complexity and having models of reality that can absorb the intense complexity of um, spirituality and technology and living in ecosystems that we've disrupted 
and living in ones that we haven't. And all of that coexisting requires of us a greater amount of work and a greater amount of flexibility and a greater amount of responsibility and those Aquarian values of sort of responsibility to the collective or like personal enlightenment along with the personal enlightenment of others and the uh, the sort of transcendent truth of all of our realities coexisting um, was kind of expressed to me in that image of the of like it's never gonna this was before 2012 and there was all that hype and it's like look it's not gonna happen it's not gonna like suddenly everything's just gonna be magical and perfect like it's gonna be magical and crazy and chaotic and imperfect and like that's the point of being on earth so your dream was deeper than the ai's dream (laughs) (laughs) They just saw droopy squirrels. Yeah, but I mean, you know, they're, they're doing pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on Team Human. It sounds so polarized when I say it now, but I didn't mean a Team Human against some other team. It's just, let's have a team. I mean, we're, we're human. <laughs> we're not not human. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peace. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.